What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Sam Cassette is the founder at Aligned Capital. He is the former chief strategy officer at Consensus. In this conversation, we discuss Ethereum, decentralized finance, DGENs, yield farming, asymmetric investments, the dark corners of crypto, and where Sam sees opportunity moving forward. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sam, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Circle. Circle is a global financial technology firm that enables businesses of all sizes to harness the power of stablecoins and public blockchains for payments, commerce, and financial applications worldwide. Circle is also a principal developer of USD Coin, USDC, which is the fastest growing, regulated, fully reserved dollar stablecoin in the world, now standing at more than $11 billion market cap, and is adding nearly $300 million of net new digital dollars in circulation every week. The free Circle account and suite of platform API services bridge the gap between traditional payments and crypto for trading, DeFi, and NFT marketplaces. You can learn more at circle.com. I've had the CEO, Jeremy, on the podcast. I'm a big fan of what they're doing. I think they've really onto something with this stablecoin. And so go learn more at circle.com. Again, circle.com. Next up is my friends over at OKX. Crypto moves fast and many crypto-focused companies can't keep up. Crypto exchanges that cut through the noise are the ones that give you access, wherever you are in the world, to the cutting-edge projects emerging in this new asset class. If you're looking for an industry leader that gives you access to a huge variety of crypto assets, tools, and services, I'd recommend OKX. As we all know, Bitcoin and other crypto prices can be volatile. If riding those price waves isn't your thing, OKX also lets you earn passive income with your crypto. Earn is OKX's portal to crypto earning opportunities, giving you easy access to DeFi earning protocols without the network fees, as well as other lending and saving opportunities where you can earn up to 15% APY on your crypto. Check out the latest high yield crypto earning options on OKEX Earn. Open an account today at OKEX.com slash POMP. That's OKEX.com slash POMP. OKEX.com slash POMP. Go check them out and let me know what you think. Last but not least are my friends over at Exodus. Exodus is leading the world out of the traditional financial system by building beautiful and user-friendly blockchain products. With its focus on design and user experience, Exodus has become one of the most popular and loved cryptocurrency apps. It's supported on both desktop and mobile, allowing you to sync your wallet across multiple devices so you can have access to your funds anywhere. You can instantly exchange around 100 different cryptocurrencies straight from your wallet. Interactive charts let you view an asset's price history and your portfolio's performance over time. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with the Treasure Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. You can visit exodus.com slash POMP for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. Again, exodus.com slash POMP for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. All right, let's get into this episode with Sam. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Sam here. What's up, man? 
hanging out in Miami doing DeFi DGen stuff. Uh, you know, that's literally all I want to talk to you about is <laughs> DeFi DGen stuff. This world is crazy. There's literally a coin right now called Cum Rocket that is exploding. Uh, Safe Moon. I live one more person messaged me about Safe Moon. I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's going to the moon, but that's what they all keep saying. Uh, let's start with your background. What did you do before Consensus? So uh, a long time ago, I was a computer scientist and cognitive scientist. Uh, I did a lot of applied science after that. So basically, uh, did a lot of work trying to unify work on human cognition and computation. Uh, then ended up working at um, an offshoot of the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory uh, called SensorStar, where we built like robotics and computer vision, stuff like that. And I was always trying to be at the cutting edge of science. That's actually what ended up leading me to cryptocurrency in general, because I thought that actually monetary technology was one of the cutting edges of, of human cognition. Right? So you're doing it's, smart shit. Yeah, smart nerd stuff. And then, you know, realized that building smart nerd stuff for other big companies doesn't make that much money. And I learned what entrepreneurship was and then sort of started going in that direction. How do you get to consensus? Uh, so was into Bitcoin from the very beginning, uh, from the you know white paper stage, just from a money nerd perspective. Wish I had bought every, sold all my clothes and bought it. Uh, but did you buy any? A little bit, yeah. uh, but you know, wish I had done more. Um, but you know, mostly just nerd. We feel up. really bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, so you know, over time, uh, you know, kind of stopped paying attention to Bitcoin, honestly, because everyone was making like a wallet or an exchange or selling drugs on the internet. I didn't really want to do any of those as a business. Um, but I heard about this thing, Ethereum. No one could explain to me what it was. Uh, and then, you know, I watched it. And then I heard uh, there's this guy going to explain what it is in New York. And so met Joe Lubin at that event uh, describing what Ethereum was. Immediately, he said it was a decentralized virtual machine. As a computer scientist, I knew what that was. And I was like, oh, my God, that's going to change the world. So uh, ended up a few weeks later joining up with Joe building consensus. Uh, I was chief strategy officer of there for like, you know, the first How big is it when you join? It was me and a few other people, kind of a loose group of people, but it was me, Joe, maybe like two or three other people in a room. All right. And what's the <laughs> vision for consensus when you start? Uh, it was to collect the smartest people around in uh, that knew what Ethereum was, which was probably only a handful of people on the planet at the time <laughs> that could actually write software. Um, start building basically a what we call a hub and spoke model, but essentially uh, started seeding the ecosystem was mm -hmm. our goal, right? Um, it was kind of like 1991, and we know that HTTP is going to be an amazing protocol, but you know the web browser doesn't exist and the Apache web server doesn't exist, and someone's got to build all that stuff. And we know that you know we can think of you know a social network, and we can start building that, and we can use that to motivate the construction of those lower layers, which is what we did. We you know, we funded Truffle and Fira, MetaMask, all the stuff that we needed to actually build on Ethereum, allowed other people to build on Ethereum. So we basically seeded that whole ecosystem. The entire time you're working there, are you getting paid in Ether? Uh, no, in the in the early days, uh, it was some crypto, uh, but then eventually it became like a normal like, corporation. Like we have to like <laughs> pretend to like have a real account. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, just before everyone gets all upset, I feel like if we sat down, everyone would be like, oh, he's the Ethereum guy and I'm the Bitcoin guy. Fuck all that. That's all labels. Yeah. It's all stupid. Yeah. Uh, what is your view of Ethereum and what's your view of Bitcoin today? Like, how do you think of those two assets? Are they competing with each other? Are they two different things? What are they? Just walk me through that framework you use. I think they're driven by completely different narratives, right? So Bitcoin, you know, if you, if you talk to someone on Wall Street, you know, the narrative they've heard probably is it's digital gold, right? It's a... Uh, 
you know, not to offend any Bitcoin people, you know, but it's, it's a slow moving asset and that's sort of a feature, not a bug, right? It's not going to change. No developer is going to come change the mechanics of its issuance, right? People get mad about, you know, Vitalik might change the way that it gets issued and therefore it's not hard money or whatever, right? Um, but you can, you can rely on that narrative that Bitcoin is going to stay basically what it is. And it's kind of, and it can be sort of a reserve asset in that sense. So f- fair to categorize as a, uh if a trade-off is security versus like innovation, speed, et cetera, it's yep. choosing security over the others. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, Ethereum? Ethereum, I see as a programmatic substrate for a new economy, right? It is. What does that mean? It, that was so, smart nerd shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so it's, 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 it's the operating system for how, what you could build on top of it, which is other financial applications, right? Or other trust-based applications. And Ethereum is like the fuel to that, right? It's sort of, if the internet, if HTTP had had a money built into it or a token of value, it's like that, right? Except it's explicitly a type of financial internet. And so it's the base unit of that. And it's almost like it's a commodity that powers that whole thing. Do you think that they compete with each other? Or are they two separate things? Like, how do you, how do you think about? Uh, I think the narrative publicly is like Bitcoin versus ETH, market cap versus market cap, uh, asset versus asset. Is that fair, or do you think that's misguided? In some cases, they compete with each other, right? I mean, it, it competes with each other for for mind share, right? Like some people are uh, institutions are investing in Bitcoin because they know it's going to be valuable over time. They don't quite understand the Ethereum narrative yet. I think they will, and so I do think they compete a little bit in that sense of like this is going to be a permanent and important asset, but they do occupy different headspaces, essentially, in different market niches. Um, they also compete a little bit or are starting to compete a little bit in the application layer, right? Like there have been a lot of people that tried to launch application layers on top of Bitcoin. Most of them haven't gone anywhere, but it's been enough years people are starting to do it. And so, you know, Ethereum obviously is way far ahead. There are other uh, competitors to Ethereum too that also have like added some incremental feature on top of Ethereum or changed it. Um, like so, other smart contract platforms. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so those are, it's starting to compete a little bit in those domains, but in general, they, they're, the Venn diagram is not that crossing over in yeah. my mind. So let's go right at, I think one of the big things that uh, the Ethereum community continues to say that the Bitcoin community is like, you guys are idiots. Like, there's no way that's true. It's this whole idea of ETH is money. I think the Ethereum community is like, hey, you guys are idiots in the Bitcoin community for whatever reason around Bitcoin is money, right? Uh, Do you think it is money? And then how do you kind of process just as currency, those two assets? I honestly don't have that strong, like one of those religious opinions that ETH is money. A lot of people tweet that and and it's a point of contention. It's a great tweet. It gets a lot of of engagement, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, if you ask an economist what money is, right, it's something like, fungible you know store value tangible or like you know not necessarily tangible but you know portable like it has these properties right and i think ethereum mostly meets those properties i don't know the u.s dollar qualifies as a store value but um you know it 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 checks a lot of those boxes you can use it to pay for stuff right now people do pay for stuff with it um but i honestly don't think that's the most important debate right and ethereum one of the big criticisms of ethereum from the bitcoin community is that it uh it has no capped supply um, and the only way you can kind of estimate how much supply it'll have is by looking at its issuance over time. With the new, with EIP-1559, like the, the new rollouts of Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0, it actually looks like it might be slightly deflationary or steady state. Um, so, you know, but it's a different flavor. You know there's, you know, X number of Bitcoins, right? So there's set 
issuance, obviously, with Bitcoin. It's programmatic, transparent, all stuff. With Ethereum, I think that is the big knock from Bitcoiners, right? Is, hey, whoever can change it, expand or contract the supply. Uh, I think the Ethereum community's argument is like there's security related issues as to why you would do that. Uh, and so, like, it's fair just to like say, okay, that's the line in the sand. And like, whichever side you agree, you agree. Fair. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, a- if you think one's more valuable <laughs> than the other, then like that's where you're going to kind of oscillate around, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they both solve the same problem. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the distinction is religious more than intellectual. Frankly. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, <laughs> I want you to tell me what the hell is going on in the most degenerate DeFi corners of the world. Uh, <laughs> and I say that, so for those that don't know, there is this entire world of... Uh, some of this is outright scams. Some of this is outright like moonshot ideas of like, let's go take down the financial system. Some of it is like, we just built cool technology. We don't even have a use case for it. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening here. Yep. But uh, when you think of like DGen, DeFi slash Ethereum world, like what is happening there? What does that constitute? Yeah. So. I'll start by saying uh, DGen is actually like a compliment. In, yes. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> we should start. Yeah. That's a great. <laughs> so, you know, it is degenerate and, and it, you know, it refers to the fact that people are, you know, throwing lots of money around in different <laughs> smart contracts and doing things that like really are fairly financially degenerate in, in the normal world. But there's also a tremendous amount of value that's being created because people are creating new financial primitives and they're bootstrapping the liquidity of those primitives. I can explain what that means. But, you know, essentially what's happened is over last summer, there's this this era that people called DeFi summer happened. And a lot of it was instigated by this uh, protocol called Yearn Finance. And what they did is they they really changed the game of how you can launch a protocol within DeFi, right? So one of the problems anyone has when they're launching a company that has infrastructure involved in it is you need to get people to use the infrastructure. DeFi has the same problem where if I make a protocol for lending or I make a protocol for you know, tracking some synthetic asset and no one's using it, there's no liquidity in the in the program, uh, it doesn't work, right? So founders need a way to get liquidity in there. And if you think about the capital markets, you know, people need some of the same stuff in normal companies too, right? That's why we have underwriters is because they they introduce liquidity, they help, they help write the price, uh, you know, correct the price um, of something when it launches. And so, you know, you need those things. You need to set the price, you need to introduce liquidity, you need to get the thing launched, you need to issue the, the new asset or whatever. And so what Yearn did is they figured out a new mechanism that no one had thought of before um, that people call liquidity mining. Um, and so, well, maybe some people have thought of that idea, but they hadn't used it in this way to completely bootstrap something. And this so, is really just going after the cold start problem, right? Yeah. Is we want to do this, but we need the liquidity or it won't work. And so how do we incentivize people to come in, give us liquidity and give them some sort of economic incentive for doing that? And then we can get to kind of scale and have the liquidity that we need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that actually doesn't sound so crazy <laughs> when you say it that way. Yeah. DGen DeFi sounds ridiculous <laughs> to most people, right? But go ahead. Yeah. I mean, the the part where it gets really DGen is that uh, when when people start designing these mechanisms that, that essentially reward you for providing liquidity, sometimes they don't know exactly how to set the issuance rate. Like they set it in the smart contract and you, you know, say I put I put a million bucks inside the smart contract, which they want me to do, that might give me $10,000 or it might give me $10 million back as a reward. And it depends on how they set the parameters and what other people are doing. And so sometimes you can get these really ridiculous returns, right? You're, you're putting something in a smart contract where it's 1,500% 
APY return, right? Which is absurd from a normal finance perspective. And that's why it's degenerate. But some of those things are scams and you lose all your money. And you know, distinguishing those things is hard. How do you and, know how do you specifically know when it's a scam versus like, oh, this is just great DeFi returns? So, you know, th- there's a larger story there, which is you know, I have a, an organization that works on this, uh, called Alignment Engine. And what we do is we're we just uh, helped launch and, and service this thing called the Neptune DAO. The Neptune DAO is a liquidity providing DAO. Uh, and we have engineers that are excellent at auditing smart contracts that actually have probably audited those specific contracts before. Uh, and we can look at them and make sure it's not a scam. But Okay, normal- so hold on, back up, back up, back up. <laughs> a liquidity DAO, what is that? So essentially, uh, people have realized, especially people on the forefront of the DGEN game, uh, have realized that they want exposure to this this new game, right? And it's a new it's a new type of market participation that actually has real value and helps protocols bootstrap, much like venture helps early protocols, you know, helps early founders. Rather than raise a seed round, you go and you get liquidity you, bootstrap. You do a liquidity deal, and I, and in fact, you know, there's a new whole type of deal that's emerging where founders will approach us, you know, privately even and say, hey, look, we need to guarantee this much. Will you like help us out? Um, or we need to move our smart contracts from L1 to L2 and we don't have enough money to do it. Um, can you help us out? So like we're, we're kind of a new type of market participant. Um, but essentially it's a bunch of, it's a pooled vehicle. It's Moloch contracts. If anyone's familiar with those other DAOs, like the Lao or the Flamingo DAO are the same one, but it's a pool of money. <laughs> so, I'm going to laugh the whole time at the names because only in crypto, but go ahead. Yeah, we get, we get weird, but you know, it's a, it's a pool of money. It's a pool of liquidity that we can do whatever the governance mechanism says we can do with it. But mostly what we want to do with it is help protocols bootstrap their liquidity and get rewarded for it. So we're almost like we're an early stage capital markets liquidity provider, but we're doing it in this weird on-chain way that we do with engineers uh, instead of you know guys in a stock market or something. Okay. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen? <laughs> like the absolute most insane thing that even people who are into crypto will be like, that's nuts. Uh, that's an interesting one. A lot of weird stuff happens. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there was a there was a protocol that launched over last summer called Based, um, and it was very explicitly a game theoretic game. Um, you know, I think their words were designed to transfer money from the the weak hands to the strong. Um, but it but essentially, you know, the, they had designed the mechanics such that it would go in these extreme oscillations, like up a thousand percent or 2000% and then down to nothing. And then the liquidity would get pulled out and then you couldn't sell it. And then it would drive it back up, et cetera. So like people had figured out this extremely new unheard of game that caused wild price fluctuations and actually does end up benefiting the owners over time if, if you hold on to this token because they've done other airdrops or whatever. But um, basically, the emergence of a new type of financial game. It's a little bit like gambling and a little bit like investing and a little bit like engineering all in one Is thing. it fair to say this is all entertainment? Like literally when they create that thing based, right? I've never heard of that before. Uh, but the fact that it goes up so much and it goes down so much is like almost a uh, a toy, right? Yep. It, it's like one, you can sit and watch and I'm sure people love watching like, oh, it went up 2000% and went down, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yep. There's an economic element of like, I'm sure people try to sell it at the top and buy it at the bottom. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. Uh, but then there's this other element of like, it's so freaking crazy that you probably get entertainment and like talking to your friends about it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, that that was very much like very meme heavy, like, you know, a little bit like gambling. But it also, it, that project specifically, I think, has some real merit to it. But 
but a lot of these things, like tendies. Wait, why does that one have merit? Uh, that one sounds like a game. Because they keep, well, it was a game and is a game, I think, but they are launching some real stuff, uh, and they're sort of secretly doing it. It's an anonymous project, and they, and they sort of slowly roll out these things, but then you're like, well, actually, that is a real utility you know and a real platform. Uh, no. No? All right. Uh, so, like, real anonymity. Yeah, it's okay. it's yeah, it's, it's anonymous. Um, and and you're seeing that a lot now, right? Because yeah. partially because the regulatory clarity is not there to yeah. be able to launch stuff. At but the sometimes it's like right? fake anonymity. Like sometimes yeah. it's like, oh, Sam launched a new project. He's using you know I don't know, <laughs> based whatever is his you know pseudonym. But like everyone knows the Sam. Yeah. And the other times it's like literally nobody knows. Yeah. No, this is like nobody knows. And it's you know partially because it's um, you don't you don't know what's going on, right? And and also, you know. Uh, liability comes from identity right mm-hmm. so it's I, I think we're seeing an era of a lot of anonymous founders right and to the extent that there's not regulatory clarity and to the extent that uh you know people want to do things that might be beyond regulatory understanding at all they're going to be more and more anonymous people so yeah. um but so you know another ridiculous one is tendies that's definitely a game right it's basically okay. a pyramid scheme and it and if you were one of the top holders then money flows up to you and it was uh, in in our Wall Street bets, uh, famous for pumping like GameStop, you know, uh, we, we like to say identified a market structure issue and short squeeze hedge funds. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm corrected. Um, so uh, you know, tendies is what they call money in their parlance, and so tendies is like a play on that. That's very explicitly a game. Uh, some of these things though are real, right? And, and a lot of what we're doing within Neptune Dow is we're actually. We're trying to take a long-term position in these assets, and these things sometimes, uh, like venture capital, has gotten a bad rap uh, within crypto, deservedly so in many cases because you know uh, the distribution is concentrated, uh, the thing launches, it gets dumped on retail, uh, the project suffers for that, and its uh, its retail investors suffer for that, and uh, and people think that's not a healthy distribution. So actually, a lot of projects launching will say. We don't have a venture round. There are no VCs involved. That's actually that's a feature, not a bug, right? Mm-hmm. And so, when these things launch, they launch with often no liquidity, and they call it a fair launch. There was also this movement last summer to fair launch projects, meaning that anyone can come and participate in the very beginning by providing liquidity. And if you help bootstrap the thing, then you're one of the early participants, one of the holders. And right? the teams don't take tokens in those fair launches, or they still take tokens uh, sometimes. Often, no. I mean, I'm sure the Teams have probably figured out some way to help farm it for themselves, you know, and that's one of the things we, you know we might want to do, right? It's like, what do founders need? You know, like maybe we want to help them farm it or whatever. But I don't think those mechanics have been completely determined. And what's fair? I think the market probably isn't necessarily demanding that people have no founder tokens, but you know, more towards that edge. Not like a venture round where the founder has like seventy five percent or something. Mm-hmm. It's like the founders get like ten percent, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but essentially. What's interesting for us is at the beginning of these protocols, if you wanted to buy a venture style, like uh, amount an amount significant to a fund, you can't do it because the tokens come into existence through this process of providing liquidity. Mm-hmm. So the only way you can get these tokens is by helping them bootstrap. And so, and, and when you say uh, help them bootstrap or provide liquidity, are you talking about taking ETH in most cases and basically providing it in some smart contract, you know, uh, or some kind of liquidity pool and then leaving it there and you're almost earning yield on your assets and then that's, you're giving them the liquidity, you're earning that yield, but that yield's paid in the token of the... Yeah, yeah, essentially. So it's a little bit like, you know, Amazon credits given to startups or something. They, they want to incentivize uh, people to come provide liquidity. So let's, an example, like let's say 
uh, let's say I'm building a new swap, like a competitor to Uniswap, right? Which is an automated market maker swapping facility. Um, so you go to it, you put one asset, you, another asset comes out, but you need you need people to have staked or like put in both sides of that asset pair for it to work. SushiSwap came along last summer, wanted to have that same functionality, but there's you know there's billions of dollars in Uniswap. How do you get billions of dollars in the new protocol so that people can actually use it? What they did is they said, if you take your uh, Uniswap liquidity and you move it over to SushiSwap, we'll start spinning out SushiSwap tokens into your wallet, right? And by doing that, you know, and if you calculate the yields on that, it's really high. It's like hundreds of percent or something, right? So people said, of course, yeah, I'm going to migrate that liquidity over. And hence, SushiSwap was born, and that's how they got their liquidity. So uh, I was telling you beforehand, um, the way that I view this has changed from a framework standpoint. At first, it was uh, everyone's saying yield, but they're not actually generating yield. What they're saying is, Sam, you know, take your uh, liquidity out of one place, put it with me, and then I'm going to give you yield. And what that insinuates, right, for the legacy world is that they're going to take your assets, they're going to go, they're going to lend it out, right, rehypothecate it, they're going to generate a rate of return, they're then going to take a percentage of that rate of return, and they're going to basically then give you a piece of it, right? So yeah. I generate 10%, I give you eight, I hold on to two, and that's how uh, the system would work. Yep. Here, what they were basically doing is they just created a bunch of tokens, right, put it into a uh, treasury, essentially, and they said, Sam, you should come here and give us your liquidity, and when you do that, we're just going to take tokens out of our own thing, we're just going to dump them on you, right? And we're going to give you hundreds of percent, and then over time, it gets commoditized down. Yep. Uh, one, the rates were unsustainable. I think everyone kind of understood that. Two was it wasn't really true yield from like a lending or rehypothecation standpoint. It was just uh, the use of the tokens, or these airdrops or, or whatever. What somebody said to me that I think is actually a fair point is, uh, wait a second, that's just customer acquisition cost. Yep. Now, the difference is uh, rather than take money, let's say if I had a normal company that I raised money from a venture capitalist and then I use it and I pay Facebook and Google for advertising to acquire users, or I say similar to how PayPal said, you know, $10 for every person you invite, you get $10. Here, you're not using dollars or capital that you raised. You're actually using some currency or asset or whatever that you created. Right. Yep. And so that would be like Amazon saying, Hey, here's a hundred thousand dollars of Amazon credits. It's not yep. necessarily dollars, just something they created. Yep. All right. So all I, that is out there. Agree or disagree that that's the right way to look at it. I, I agree. And I think it's also it also has the byproduct of distributing your asset and creating your asset. So it's not necessarily that they have it in the treasury already and they dump it on you. It's that that is the the event that generates the token to begin with, which is something they needed to do. They need to have some distribution schedule or logic of how that gets created. So it does that for them. And then it puts the, you know, the the base asset of the protocol in the hands of lots of different people, which people believe is a healthy distribution economically for that thing. So it so it so it's like customer acquisition and it's also like some other capital markets kind of functions. If we take a hundred percent of this world and I said to you, what percentage is scams, what percentage is games, and what percentage is real? Are we 90% real in your opinion, 5% 5% of scams and games? What's like the breakdown? Or 90% scams <laughs> and 5% you know, real? Like, How would you, from your opinion, break down uh, between those three buckets? I- I think there's like a sliding scale that okay. depends on. That scares uh, me. That that's the, your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it, well, it's it's a time a time slider. Let's say so. Like when Ethereum started doing this, a lot of the projects that were launching were were legitimate and they were experimental because no one had ever yep. thought of this before. But they were legitimately trying to do something. And then 
you know, a month goes by, two months goes by, everybody and their brother has the source code of that and can launch yep. a new scam one, and then that turns into 90% scams, right? Okay. Same thing just happened on BSC, which is uh, Binance. Binance. Binance basically took Ethereum, ripped out all the decentralization, and put it... Is know, Binance going to disrupt Ethereum? <laughs> I don't think so. No? But, Why not? Uh, well, you know, there's a... There's a small group of people that can turn off Binance Smart Chain. Uh, and so, you know. Are there a small group of people that could t- roll back Ethereum? Uh, not physically, no. I mean, you'd have to get every, or, you know, 51% of all the miners in the world, uh, or more than that, even. I think okay. you could argue. Um, but uh, I don't know enough about BSC Ethereum differences to know what to ask there. So, <laughs> so BSC, I mean, Ethereum has like, you know, thousands of, of node operators all over the world that don't know each other, right? Like tens of thousands, at least, of miners that are all mining it. And they all have to agree if they wanted to change something, right? Which generally isn't going to happen unless it's something really important like upgrading to Ethereum 2.0 or something, right? Um, with BSC, what they did is they ripped out all that stuff that makes it so that there are thousands of uh, unaffiliated nodes all over the world, and they just made it some like servers that Binance owns. But okay. it still is compatible with like MetaMask and like other Ethereum, like Ethereum code can run on it, stuff like that. So, so what you had was BSC launched. It's much cheaper to run stuff on BSC because the gas prices of Ethereum got really high. Uh, so you could launch these farms. Initially, there were probably some people, you know, building real things like Pancake Swap is a real thing. Um, I've and, actually heard of that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it has a big market cap. Like it has real utility. Um, if you believe BSC has real utility, but uh, and then you know, and or people were saying, well, it's too expensive to launch on Ethereum. I'm going to launch on BSC, and maybe I'll move to Ethereum later or, or something else later, right? So it has that real utility. Um, and uh, but then you know that's so cheap and so easy over time. You know, ninety percent of that was eventually scams, and I think it probably is right now. Okay. Uh, when you think about this entire world, I'm going to ask you for the bullish view and then the critique. We'll start with uh, the critique first, and then we'll we'll move to the bullish view. Uh, the Ethereum slash smart contracts, like uh, all the platforms that are not Bitcoin. What's the biggest critique or like the biggest risk? So if you said, hey, you know, uh, in order to be bullish on something, I also have to be the one who can like articulate the the other side of the argument the best. What do you think is like the fair critiques of Ethereum or like this whole world? And maybe uh, you say there are none. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, Vitalik is a uh, god. Um, well, so. That's going to be a meme. Somebody <laughs> meme that. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think some of the criticisms are, are probably rightfully around the edge cases of, of trust and the things that we build into the real world for human error and jurisprudence and gray areas, right? Like a lot of people are on this sort of kick of code is law and, you know, this can actually completely replace everything about the trust infrastructure of humans. And the fact of the matter is there's a soft side to why humans trust each other and how they trust each other. And there's a clause in every contract that says, well, if this contract doesn't actually specify what to do and we dis- we dispute it, then this is how you dispute it. And you go to arbitration and you go to this court mm-hmm. and, and you talk to humans about it, right? So I think while we can over time dramatically make more efficient and faster and cheaper, a large part of the trust infrastructure of the world, like court systems and law enforcement and lawyers and stuff like that, we can't totally eliminate it. So I think, you know, I, I think uh, that immutability and that sort of uh, 
that hardlineness about the way it it behaves is both a feature and a bug, um, and it makes it probably not rise up to completely replacing everything about how we deal with finance and trust. Um, but it can take us farther than we are right now, for sure. Okay, what's the bullish case? Like, is ETH the global reserve currency in the future? In your opinion, is this the protocol on which every financial application in the world runs on? Yeah. So, um, you know, to yes, I possibly, and you know, not to both. Yeah, to both. I mean, either ether or something like it. And you know, not to talk my book, right? Like, I, I have an open mind. Uh, I personally really like Ethereum, and I think it has the strongest case for taking that on. Um, now that we've realized that there can be this decentralized trust infrastructure that is dramatically cheaper, right? And people talk about, you know, the environmental impact of crypto or whatever, but the, the right comparison is not crypto or nothing. The right comparison is Ethereum slash crypto versus like every bank building in the world, every court system in the world, all the mi- miles driven to those court cases and by lawyers and police forces and all the money you spend on military to like enforce the rule of law and and, and do you know the energy like, consumption of the meteor uh, industry? I don't, but I would it is that. way too high. <laughs> we, it, it, it should be a national crisis. Yeah. Like we, yeah. somebody should write about that, right? <laughs> like, they literally print physical papers. How many trees get killed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. I mean, like. <laughs> Just so we're very clear, um, being facetious to a degree, but like that is the outrageousness of the argument, right? Is if we basically said, look at how many trees the media industry is killing, we should shut down the media industry. Yeah. Like people would be like, that's absurd. Yeah. Like, well, okay, then that's exactly what you're saying about crypto. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't understand that cutting down those trees has some value, then yeah, maybe it it seems makes sense, but it doesn't because it's really useful. So people, people haven't yet grokked that this could be a replacement for large parts of that stuff that we spend lots of resources on, right? It can replace, as I was saying, like the trust infrastructure, all that, all those police and courts and lawyers and whatever that, that we need in order to, to do business with each other and trust each other. If that were, uh, if we could replace all that with something cheaper and better, faster that looked like the internet, and that internet had a money built into it or a, a you know something of value built into it, people get upset about the word money, but if it had a native asset built into it, if HTTP, if your web browser since the early 90s had had a money built into it, that would probably be pretty freaking valuable. Um, I think that's the bull case for it. What are the odds that what I'm about to say is true? Bitcoin, first digital currency, right? Uh, people want to do more with it. They can't. Smart contracts, composability, et cetera. They go in the build of Ethereum and then a plethora of other smart contract platforms. The belief is that you can scale on layer one. They don't. Move to layer two scalability. At the same time, Bitcoin is layer two as well. Uh, now that there's smart contracts on Bitcoin, smart contracts on Ethereum, uh, they both coexist. Some people will choose to have vertical integration between what they deem is the hard sound money with these digital decentralized kind of smart contract based DeFi applications uh, on the Bitcoin. And then in the Ethereum world, people see ETH as money and they go and they vertically integrate digital decentralized smart contract you know, DeFi applications on that ETH as money thesis. Yep. Does that seem like where we're headed? Maybe. Um, you I sound know, like you don't you, agree. <laughs> well, you know, you're allowed you, to you, disagree as so, much as you want. So, <laughs> you you know, honestly, more about the Bitcoin ecosystem than I do. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I obviously. Good, because you I, know more about Ethereum <laughs> than I do. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
you know, so I, like, I spent many years like pretty much only thinking about Ethereum. Um, and, but that was the only thing that was doing anything like that for many years in, in fairness. So, and anything else trying to do that was basically trying to copy Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. So um, is it the case that people are building smart contracts on top of Bitcoin? Yes. Like what makes a smart contract platform successful? A lot of things. One of the things is community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is liquidity. You can't really fork community or liquidity. Um, and, and it's very difficult, especially between the Bitcoin and Ethereum communities, to get that cross Should I ask you the million-dollar question? Which community <laughs> is uh, is uh, more vibrant, <laughs> Bitcoin or Ethereum? Well, you know, uh, if you like, like, unicorns and, uh, you know, anime and also the future of finance, uh, <laughs> Ethereum. If you like, like, steak and, like, Ludwig von Mises, probably Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're both we're both in trouble. <laughs> that was actually a very good answer to a, a nearly impossible question. <laughs> By the way, Bitcoiners do like steak and uh, Mises, so yeah, like yeah. yeah, that you correctly yeah, identified. Yeah. They do not probably actually like unicorns uh, or anime. So yeah. like okay, <laughs> uh, when uh, w- when you think about the institutions that are coming, right? That was a whole thing. I think. Bitcoin was kind of the first asset. That's the one everyone's really focused on. Institutions now are set to buy Bitcoin. Uh, is your expectation that they'll eventually buy Ether? They'll go into you know Ethereum-based DeFi. They'll go participate in all these lending and uh, liquidity stuff. Uh, and they'll like Wall Street will become Degen over time, or like <laughs> like what? Or is that all fantasy land? And like they're just going to buy Bitcoin. Maybe they'll buy some ETH, and like that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a few layers to that, right? They're obviously already buying Bitcoin. Um, if you looked at the last few days of Ethereum, uh, you know, it looks like somebody big is buying a bunch of Ethereum. I'm not sure, but I don't think it's very long. And I, and I think it's probably already the case that people have said, okay, what's the second biggest one? Bitcoin just went up. We should have done what Elon did. We should have done what Paul Tudor Jones did. Um, maybe the smaller one has some room to run. That's already happening, right? Um, so that's easy. That'll definitely happen and is already happening a little bit. Um, the second phase of that, though, is DeFi, DGen stuff, right? A lot of this stuff has the regulatory clarity of, you know, MUD and the, you know, when they have their limited partnership agreements and they have their regulatory, you know, compliance guys and, you know, they look at that, it freaks them out, right? And so some of the stuff that's completely decentralized, there's almost no way that you could you could touch that from the current perspective, Right. That said, I often talk to large, well-capitalized hedge fund guys. They're like, well, "I really wish I could work on this. Can I work for you?" Actually, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think I think the you know the people are the, especially the the younger generations are pulling people in that direction. Um, and there's going to be there's already so much yield. There's so much money being made. There's you know just like Bitcoin was five years ago, just like Ethereum was three years ago or whatever. Um, it takes a while for them to catch up. But they're going to realize that there's so much money to be made. And there's also, you know, the future of finance to be constructed and to be a part of. And, you know, Wells Fargo, their logo is a horse-drawn carriage, right? Um, they figured out they need to do something different. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll figure out, you know, the next thing, too. Uh, it'll take time, though. That's actually a great point. I always forget that. <laughs> You've thought about this before. <laughs> All right. I know we got to go. Uh, I got three questions to finish up. You'll get to ask me one. Uh, first is, what's the most important book you've ever read? The most important book I've ever read? 
I think you might have asked me this before, so I'll probably, I, I don't know if I'll say the same book, but um, probably a book called Synergetics by Buckminster Fuller. Um, well, I don't think that's what you said last time. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in terms of like it being a, an important book, it's basically his like magnum opus of everything that he studied in science and looking at the structure of nature and how nature informs design. And if you want to essentially, if, if evolution constructs reality, uh, the phrase every any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature I think is true because over time evolution will wear down anything that doesn't meet certain uh, efficiencies certain design patterns that nature has discovered over billions of years and this is his explication in deep scientific detail of why you see the same patterns in plants and mm-hmm. stars and galaxies and subatomic particles and metal alloys and whatever and it's just a beautiful scientific representation of that and I think is contains a lot of the design patterns of where our species will go if it survives. That was actually a great answer. <laughs> great job. <laughs> uh, next one's from Eight Sleep. Uh, they've got thermoregulated bed. Basically, okay. I make it cold as shit and go to sleep and sleep forever. I used to not do that. Okay. Uh, what's your sleep pattern? Like, do you sleep a lot? Not a lot. Is Dgen did, World, did, uh, you know, uh, allow you to sleep? That's a funny question. Yeah, Dgen World is a twenty four seven world, and like last summer, I was probably I I would like you know uh, pass off the baton to my wife, and when she was getting up, I'd probably go to sleep. Um, so I sleep in short amounts. Uh, I like it to be cold, and uh, but not nearly enough. And I don't think I will over the next uh, you know year as we build out the Dgen ecosystem. So usually I would ask about aliens. We've already talked about it uh, previously. So my question to you is, is it fair to call you the king of the D-gens? Is, is, that, is that an applicable title here? I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't want that wasn't name, a no. I, I don't want to name myself that. That's a, you know. All right, but, well, if I but, name but you But if you that, name it, I would accept it. Okay, you know? so and, the king of the D-gens. You know, I mean, D-gens, I think what I do is I bridge the D-gens, right? Because okay. because I'm, I'm in the chat rooms with, with teenagers that are working on DeFi protocols in the middle of the night. And I'm also, you know, by some people's estimation, a normal business person, financial professional. And so I, I try to bridge you those can, worlds. All right, know. that's fair. But I'm sort of like king of the DJs. <laughs> you could ask me one question. What you got for me? Um, what is uh, what is the best answer you've received about whether aliens exist? Um probabilistically yes but they're also probabilistically too far away therefore their existence won't be recognized by us because we'll never be able to communicate with them they'll never be able to communicate with us for you know hundreds of thousands of years and i think that's probably the best answer because that's the answer i believe right (laughs) of like just like yeah like the the galaxies are too big something's probably out there but we can't even get to mars let alone anywhere else so like we're never gonna know about it yep fair enough or they're already all around us you could be an alien. You could be the alien of the DJs. <laughs> all right. Where can we find people to find you on the internet? Uh, where do you want to send the people? <laughs> uh, probably by Twitter is the best, just at Sam Cassett. Um, and uh, check out the the Neptune Dow, NeptuneDow.xyz. <laughs> the Neptune being the god of I can't believe I'm allowing this right now. <laughs> all right, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. We'll do it again. Thank you very much. Very cool.